Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. As of this recording, there have been 297 mass shootings in the United States in 2018, including the recent tragedy at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. In this episode of Tell Me More, former U.S. Congressman Steve Israel and filmmaker Sarah Ullman, co-founder of the Super PAC One Vote at a Time, offer their perspectives on gun violence and gun control, one of the most divisive issues in America today. Israel, a Democrat who formerly represented New York's 3rd Congressional District, is the author of Big Guns, a satire of America's gun lobby and of the political system in which it operates. Ullman's super PAC, One Vote at a Time, is devoted to supporting progressive candidates committed to ending gun violence in their communities. She also is a filmmaker and a 2010 graduate of Tufts University. Israel and Ullman spoke as invited guests at a Tufts event entitled Bringing in the Big Guns, How Voters Can Disarm America's Gun Lobby. Here, they speak candidly with Julie Dobrow, the director of the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies at Tufts and a senior fellow in media and civic engagement at Tisch College. Let's listen in. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, this podcast seems scarily relevant in the light of the events that just happened this past weekend in Pittsburgh. Um, according to the Gun Violence Archive, a nonpartisan online access site, there have already been almost 50,000 incidents of gun violence in the United States in 2018. This includes almost 12,000 deaths, more than 2,300 teenagers have been killed or injured, and over 500 children under the age of 12 have been killed or injured. There have been well over 100 mass shootings since the tragedy at Parkland High School alone. So, Congressman Israel, um, I want to ask you first, your book, Big Guns, is a really a biting satire of Americans' gun lobby and the political system in which it operates. What inspired you to write a satire? And do you think that in the current political climate, we need to have something other than just constant news about gun violence to get something done? You know, I served in uh, the House of Representatives for 16 years and served in the Democratic leadership as chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. In those 16 years, there were 52 mass shootings in America, uh, including uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School, uh, a nightclub in Orlando, a church in Charleston, a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. And after every single one of those shootings, the number one question that I faced as a member of Congress from my constituents was this. When will Congress do something about this? And the question didn't just come from progressives. It came from NRA members. The vast majority of Americans support common sense gun safety measures. The, the real answer to the question, the honest answer that I couldn't give people was never. Congress will not act for as long as members of Congress put the interests of their next election ahead of the interests of children in their schools. And so I decided the most effective way I could answer the question and the most effective way that I could make a difference was not to write a law that wouldn't pass, but to write a book exposing why Congress acts the way it does or doesn't act the way it should and to do it in the best way I know uh, through comedy, through satire, through snark and from deep 
inside the United States House of Representatives. Sarah, first of all, I just have to say that I'm so proud of you. Here you are, a former student, and you are doing all of these really cool and really important things. Um, so it's really a thrill to be able to ask you some questions as well. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about some of the work that you're doing as co-founder of One Vote at a Time, uh, a super PAC that's devoted to supporting progressive candidates committed to ending gun violence. And I guess I'd ask you a similar question. Uh, since some of your work is through film, is there something about the platform of film or something about entertainment that you think is going to help break through the noise of the news? So One Vote at a Time is a team of female filmmakers, and we make free, in-kind campaign videos for candidates who believe in gun safety legislation. And this year, we worked in 10 different states and with 190 candidates, and we made 570 videos. And um, to answer your question, I think, yes, I think there's something enormously powerful about storytelling in a, a time when... Uh, facts are few and far between and people are decrying legitimate journalism as fake news and people don't know where to turn. I think that storytelling has a real opportunity to cut through that confusion and to inspire people to action. Great. Um, Congressman Israel, do you hope that your book is going to persuade readers to change their opinion on the topic of gun control, or do you actually have a different goal in mind? The goal that I had in, in writing Big Guns was to try and change some opinions, uh, but also bring people into the system. Uh, you know, it's unfathomable to so many people uh, that we have a Congress that would allow children uh, to be killed in their schools and not vote for uh, strengthen background checks or no fly, no buy. And there, it just seems to me that there's this kind of uh, divide between the American people and their Congress. And it's, it's really a divide that is uh, based on a, a misunderstanding. People just don't understand. They don't get why Congress doesn't get it. So I wrote this book so that people would understand the dynamics uh, of, of this debate in Congress in, in a very farcical way. The pretense of the book, of course, is that Congress decides to pass a bill or to try and pass a bill that mandates that mandates that every American must own and carry a gun with common sense exceptions for children under the age of seven. Uh, and so I bring people into that paradigm, which at the when I began writing this book, it just seemed to be so farcical. But if you listen to President Trump after the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, what's the first thing he said? Well, he should have had guns inside the synagogue. No, we shouldn't have guns inside the synagogue. More guns is not going to create less gun violence. What we should do is have fewer military style assault weapons on the streets or make it harder for people to get them. The point that I tried to make in the book is that we have a Congress right now that really believes in many cases that the answer to gun violence is to just have more guns on the streets, on people's hips, uh, without any background checks or without any reasonable controls. Sarah, I know that you started this work in a really personal way. And I wonder if you can share with our listeners why it is that you felt so compelled to start this very important work that you're now engaged in. Well, I remember it's one of those rare projects where you actually have a distinct memory of the moment that it started. And I was it was after the Pulse nightclub shooting in June of 2016. 
and I was sitting on my couch, um, Chromecasting C-SPAN, as one does, um, as a millennial does, I suppose. Um, and uh, I, I saw Senator Chris Murphy taking a stand, a literal stand, uh, to try and force uh, the Senate to vote on gun safety legislation. And I used to intern for him, and I, I admire him as a leader, and I'm from Connecticut. And uh, just... I was done. I just had had enough. I was tired of tweeting and calling and uh, donating. And I thought, um, where do I sit? What's What do I know how to do? Um, and what I know how to do is make videos that do well on the internet. And so decided to try and help apply that skill to get more good people elected to office to change the people who who were there. Question for both of you. What do you think is the single biggest thing that has to happen on a national level to affect change when it comes to America's gun lobby? So the the issue is uh, voter intensity. Uh, when and right now the intensity is all with people who are opposed to gun safety measures. They will forgive a member of Congress who votes against them on every issue, but as long as that member of Congress votes with them on guns, they're going to vote for that member of Congress. On the other side, you have many progressive voters, for example, uh, who have members of Congress who may vote against strength and background checks, may vote against no fly, no buy, but they're okay on things like climate change or choice or other issues. When voter intensity is as strong for with constituents who want gun safety bills as it is with the current group of constituents who are opposed to gun safety bills, that's when political calculations on Capitol Hill will change. I think that the expansion of the right to vote is uh, the thing that could make the difference on this issue and, frankly, most others uh, for, progress for progressive people. Um, voter suppression tactics since the gutting of the Voting Rights Act uh, have been virulent and devastating to people who just want to exercise their right to vote. And I think Republicans have been targeting voters of color with surgical precision with voter suppression tactics. And I think that voters of color very often are progressive people and uh, want to see gun safety legislation in place. And they are most impacted by gun violence. Communities of color are the the place that gun violence is the most uh, devastating on a day to day basis. You know, so we're seeing this expand to our suburban schools. You know, children get being slaughtered in their schools. But what we're sometimes neglecting to talk about in the media is that it's happening every day in communities of colors and not just in in, in school, um, at home, uh, you know, in, in other places. And so I think the expansion of the right to vote and also uh, this might come as the height of irony from a person who has a super PAC, but I do think that uh, public financing of election and, and massive campaign finance reform would also go a long way towards solving this issue in a, in a one fell swoop. I would just add one thing. I think Sarah's absolutely right, particularly with campaign finance. But the other structural change that will lead to a better outcome with respect to passing gun safety legislation is ending gerrymandering. The problem that we have right now is that members of Congress may agree with no fly, no buy. They may agree with strengthening 
background checks, but their districts have been drawn so far to the right that they fear a primary. They know that if they vote, for example, uh, for strengthened background checks, that vote is going to draw a primary opponent. And that primary opponent is going to win that primary on that one single issue with those single issue voters. Uh, And so the one smart thing we can do, not only with respect to reducing gun violence in this country, but just leveling the playing field across the board is to stop the partisan gerrymandering that is drawing districts to the extreme and create more districts where compromise and common sense is valued. So I'm hoping that this is in some ways a a moot point, given the horrific events that we've just experienced over the, the past weekend in Pittsburgh. But I wonder what you both think as we look to the midterms up until this point, it has seemed that despite the very best efforts of gun control activists like former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and the amazing young people from Parkland High School, gun control just hasn't been a front burner issue. Why do you think this is? And uh, is there anything apart from literally ripping stuff from today's headlines that, that can make gun control into more of a front burner issue? I think the reason that the Parkland students have had some success in moving the needle and making more people care is because they're in a time of life when they're old enough to be almost voters. You know, they're almost adults. They're young adults. Um, and uh, and and they're, they're people who aren't afraid and haven't been um, sort of molded and shaped by society to quiet their opinions. A lot of them are theater kids and they're happy to express themselves and express themselves in a way that makes a lot of people feel deeply uncomfortable about where we are in a way that me talking or you talking about this issue just won't do. And I think their honesty and and their bluntness and their lack of fear and because they've faced the most terrible thing that one could face as a child. And what else is there to be scared of except for it happening again to their friends, to their family, to the people who love them? And so they are activists not by choice, but they have certainly forced us to reconcile the world that we have allowed to exist and 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 our role in the creation of that world. I'll answer your question about how you bring this issue to the front burner with a a true story. Uh, After the Parkland shooting, uh, I was asked by a group of young people to attend a rally at my local town hall with uh, with people on this issue. And I had retired from Congress and, uh, you know, I'm trying to throttle back on the number of speeches I do so I can write more. But I didn't have the heart to tell these kids that I wouldn't do it. And so I woke up on a Sunday morning, cold Sunday morning, and went to the Huntington Town Hall on the North Shore of Long Island. Now, I had been a town councilman in that town hall. And I can tell you, whenever we held a rally, if we served free pizza on a good day, we'd get 15 people. So I went to this thing thinking, all right, what are they going to be, a couple dozen? I showed up 3,000 people in the parking lot of the Huntington Town Hall, a suburb about 50 miles from New York City. But my political antenna went up immediately. And the first calculation I made as a recovering congressman was, 
half this crowd are kids. They can't even vote. What a waste of time this is. And then my new antenna went up and I looked at the crowd and said, half, these crowd, half this crowd are kids. The other half are the parents who had to drive them here. If those kids can drive their parents to the polls this November and watch them vote and demand that they vote for members of Congress who are going to keep them safe in schools, we're going to win this election. And we're going to have a fundamental change on the issue in the Congress. In most elections, I say this is the former chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. In most elections, parents drive, their, drive to the polls. They bring their kids to watch them vote because it's fun. In this election, on this issue for the first time, children are going to demand that their parents drive them to the polls so they can watch them vote to keep them safe. That change of the narrative could change public policy on this issue. Another question for both of you. Congressman Israel, you were fortunate enough here at Tufts to have you teaching a class for us this semester. So you are working regularly with young people. And Sarah, you're certainly a millennial. You're of the demographic that needs to get out to the polls and vote. Um, can you both talk a little bit about what you think it's going to take for young people to get involved on the grassroots level, what can they do other than, than the students who have been directly affected by gun violence, like the students at Bark Parkland, like the students at so many schools throughout the United States? But for, for students who haven't been touched directly, students who feel some degree of complacency, students who are of that demographic who just don't get out and vote, or at least they haven't in the past, What's going to change? What, what do we need to have happen to make that change? I think you're seeing it change because people are more and more seeing the visceral consequences of not voting and the safety of their friends, the safety of their communities. And it's not just gun violence. It's echoes throughout other many other issues. We, we're seeing the results of a lack of participation. I was on a panel the other day and someone said um, this about women of color. Um, you know, you you get a black woman to vote and she brings um, not just herself, but her family, her block, her sorority, you know, and, and sort of that impact echoes, uh, that impact ripples throughout her community because she convinces other people who are close to her to come along and, and exercise their role to vote or their power to vote as well. I think that... Um, you know, to Congressman Israel's point, uh, kids who are kids or young adults or people who are seeing their communities very viscerally threatened uh, are are saying to their friends, no, it's not a choice. It's not your private choice right now. It's it's an obligation. And um, and and now is our time to to do what we can to to protect ourselves. And it's it's not just about advancing a political future. Now it has very serious life or death consequences. Like voting is not about um, taxes anymore. I mean, sure, it's about taxes for some people, but um, but for the people we're talking about, it's not just about taxes. It's about do I have access to a doctor? Do I have clean water to drink? Will I get shot in my school? Uh, and those are all very serious things. I couldn't have said it better. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, and, and I think thank you both for bringing such deep insights from each of your perspectives. 
Um, a final question for both of you. Uh, Congressman Israel, can you tell us one th more thing about yourself that people don't know? It can be anything. Well, um, yes, I will admit on this podcast for the first time ever that I was rooting for the Boston Red Sox to win the World Series. And I say that as a fan of the New York Mets. I too am a Mets fan. From I, I grew up in your district, <laughs> but I've been living in Boston so many years and all four of my kids have grown up rabid Red Sox fans. So I'm very happy about the last night's results as well. Sarah, same question for you. Can you tell us something that people don't know about you that you think they should know? Oh, goodness. Julie, <laughs> come on. Uh, if we're talking about sports, I guess the the deep, dark secret is that now that I live in L.A., I'm a Dodgers fan. So I was, you know, it was very big shift for me. My whole family's Red Sox. I got a, a da daggers at the dinner table last night when talking about, oh, you the Dodgers game, they're like, it's the Red Sox game, excuse you. Um, so uh, I hope my mom doesn't hear this, my dad doesn't hear this, but but yeah, there you go. I don't know that that's the thing that I want people to especially know about me. I gotta like, what, like, what zone are we talking, Julie? Hard questions. Yeah. Hard, very hard questions. Very hard questions. Great, well, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Be sure to subscribe to listen to more episodes of the podcast, and please take a minute to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Katie McLeod Strollo, Stefan Hacker, and Dave Nusher. Web production and editing support provided by Momo Shinzawa and Taylor McNeil. Production support provided by 5 to 9 Media. Special thanks to the Tufts Lawyers Association, the Tufts Social Impact Network, Tufts Alumni Boston, and the Jonathan M. Tisch College of Civic Life. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music. And my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well. <laughs>